Welcome to another episode of Sound Digressions. Here we are, nearing the end of another year. 2023, just around the corner. This time around, I'm going to talk a little bit about the situation in Peru, the continuing pandemic as it manifests itself, itself very thoroughly in China and other places around the world. And yeah, that's what we got today <laughs> on this episode. So stick around. And yeah, here we go. I think it is a sure sign that I'm getting old that I think it fitting to begin every episode with a health update. <laughs> my knee is still out of sorts, but it's not really my knee. It's <laughs> it's the the tendon that runs that connects basically from my hip to my tibia on my left leg the iliotal tibial band and it has been hurting uh, common very common um, overuse injury suffered by many runners and I think it's getting better because it is no longer the same parts of my leg that hurt. For a long time, it was really around the knee, but in the last week or so, it's moved to my calf and to my thigh. The quads are beginning to hurt a bit more, and actually it's the quads that really call out attention when I'm actually running out there. I'm still running, it's not a big deal, it's not a serious injury at this point. When I looked at online information about as to you know what to do, how to heal it, often there's a lot of massaging and stretching recommended. Of course, a little bit of strength strengthening of the glutes and the TFL, which I forget what that stands for, but it's like a little muscle near the top of your thigh and a little bit to the side. But a lot of the medical advice and more medical side of things says, you know, wait six months before um, before it is, you know, to wait six months before considering a really serious issue. I mean, like the advice, and <laughs> the advice is really to seek help as quickly as possible. But that <laughs> if it is uh, what I think it is, ITBS, uh, iliotal tibial band syndrome then it's not a huge cause for concern unless it's been something ongoing for over half a year. And that's enough of the health report. <laughs> what is going on in the world? I've been keeping my eye on Peru. The president, Pedro Castillo, the now former president, Pedro Castillo, has been ousted after he attempted to dissolve Congress. Now, there is a lot of debate, and I think most of the opinions lean towards him not having quite the right to dissolve Congress in the way that he attempted to do. But the response has also been 
a coup. So he attempted to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. And Congress turned around and says, like, we're not having any of that. You're the one who's getting kicked out. And he's being put in jail. He's, I believe, he is currently on an 18 months detainment, uh, pre-trial detainment. And who knows what kind of prison sentence he will get. Now, from my understanding, Pedro Castillo was not the most popular president in Peru. They've had, I believe, seven different presidents in the last seven years. Congress is particularly powerful in the country, and they tend to represent really the established uh, moneyed class in the country. Whereas Pedro Castillo really came out of nowhere. He was a school teacher, a campesino, indigenous, and he narrowly squeaked in and won the presidency. But he wasn't really a clever political operator. From what I've read, it seems like he wasn't very good at forming alliances to protect himself from the oligarchs that have dominated the political scene for a very long time in the country. Kind of unintentionally, his ousting, his imprisoning, the coup, his arrest has actually increased his popularity in the rural areas of Peru that are also mostly, mostly indigenous. And this has led to sustained protest in the country. And the ruling regime has sent in the army to try to squash the protests. About 20 protesters, at least 20 protesters, have been killed up to this point in various uh, cities. The situation, I don't think, will cool down anytime soon. The vice president was sworn in, Dina Boluarte. She is the first woman president that Peru has ever had. Congress basically swore her in for a full term, so until 2026, but because of the protest and international outcry, many countries, many other countries' leaders have come out in favor of Pedro Castillo, particularly of note would be Evo Morales, who's not the president anymore of uh, Bolivia, but, you know, he's a leading political figure still in that country, uh, following his own uh, suffering of a mili military coup uh 2019, I believe, when he was kicked out. And then his party, his movement, uh, managed to claw their way back into power. Uh, really an inspiring story of from Bolivia. Luis Arce, the actual president, is also voiced support for Pedro Castillo, as has Nicolas Maduro and AMLO in Mexico, López Obrador. There have been some strange tensions. Mexico has played a role, as they did with uh, Evo Morales, of offering asylum, safe uh, keeping, to the ousted president. And this has created intense political tensions between Peru and Mexico. 
and we're still seeing like what the actual i think they're trying to negotiate something uh but anyway it's still yet to see determine exactly what the fallout from that will be mexico has also offered asylum to julian assange and they have a long history of providing asylum to to political figures from latin america as well i'm not like an expert on this stuff i feel like this is all just stuff i picked up trying to follow the news it's kind of hard when events are happening to figure out exactly what's going on or to get a proper sense of what what is happening because there is a certain kind of fog hot covering things that it's not immediately apparent what is true and what is not true so <laughs> if i'm your only news source on this <laughs> watch out <laughs> Um, I think I've got in the broad strokes of the story, right? But some of the finer details I may have missed. <laughs> I'm dead. <idiot. laughs> all right, all right, all right. Enough about Peru. But that's, you know, Pedro Castillo kind of symbolized a, that sort of the, what many pundits called kind of like a pink tide reemerging in Latin America where left-leaning leaders are emerging all over the place. And I mean, like we have the well-established ones in Cuba and Venezuela, and now Bolivia is an inspiring source. Honduras has kind of suffered, uh, they've elected a leftist leader, Xiomara Castro, but a, a president, a leftist president, she is running very much into similar counterforces that Pedro Castillo did, in which the ruling oligarchs, the moneyed class, the business leaders, are in control of much of the government, and thus are using the whatever legal means possible for them to thwart any progress made by Xiomara Castro. One thing that is important to note, and I feel like there's, it hasn't gotten quite as much coverage as it should, it's an alarming event, is that the current U.S. ambassador to Peru, Lisa Kenna, met with Peru's defense minister just a couple of days before the coup. And the United States has already voiced support for the new president that has been sworn in in the country. We saw something similar in 2009 in Honduras when the then Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, welcomed the coup government uh, in the country, thus, you know, le legitimizing the coup when Manuel Zelaya was ousted. We saw the same thing happen in Bolivia. The... Um, the U.S. was right there, ready to welcome the new, the new government coup government. They tried. <laughs> they tried comically to usher in, oh, what's his face, Juan Guaido, into Venezuela. Lisa Kenna is not nobody. She is. <laughs> I mean, maybe the assignment of ambassador to Peru is not the most prestigious ambassador assignment, 
But, 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 she is a veteran of the CIA. She's worked for the Pentagon before. A lot of red flags go up when, for anyone who's genuinely anti-imperialist, and a lot of red flags go up when you see the agents of the most powerful nation in the world welcoming, welcoming a coup government almost instantly after they've conducted their coup. One of perhaps the most famous or at least most uh, viewed moments, recent moments or recent historical, anyway, within the last decade of the U.S. of U.S. ambassadors engaging in political interference is probably the case of Victoria Newland, who got caught talking to the then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, about who they would install in the new Ukrainian government just a couple of weeks before then-President Viktor Yanukovych was driven from power. The fact that the U.S. State Department so readily accepts these new coup governments is a giant marker that there's potentially American political interference happening in these coups or guarantees of favorable reception can go a long way. A guarantee of favorable reception can go a long way towards incentivizing these groups. And there's a long history of American political interference all over the globe. Latin America is a special case. (laughs) Uh, I'm just laughing because I'm just reminding myself, remembering uh, Joe Biden saying that Latin America was not America's backyard, but its front yard, uh, as though that was... <laughs> as though he was turning a negative into a positive. Uh, yes, okay. Oof. But that's enough about international political intrigue. Let's turn to COVID. I can't remember which episode I did this in, and I'm not going to go back and check. I know it was probably within the, like the last month and a half, last two months, maybe last three months. My memory is really not something to be envied. <laughs> um, but I predicted. With, you know, it was not... A <laughs> not a particularly difficult prediction to make that Quebec would see five peaks of hospitalizations going over 2,000 people in hospitals during the course of 2022, the current year. That has happened in the last few days. There is a pretty handy chart on the Vaccine Tracker Quebec website which shows you hospital overlays the last three years and the number of hospitalizations in each year on top of each other. So you can see (laughs) just what a radical rise in hospitalizations has occurred in the last year, 2023, compared to 2021 and 2020. 
both years which enjoyed significant drops in hospitalizations, at least at one point during the year. During 2023, we've stayed very high, barely dipping below a thousand people in the hospital due to COVID, uh, with COVID, due to COVID. And we've actually reached the, the five peaks I'm talking about is like 2000 hospitalizations at a time. If we've reached the fifth peak and the fifth time we've surpassed that mark in this calendar year. And I, we, it's, we're entering that period of the year, the holiday break, Christmas season, winter, uh, rest, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> in which a lot of things shut down. So we're not going to find out for the next couple of weeks exactly how bad, you know, the the situation gets. My sense is that we might not get a very clear picture until then. I don't know. I my 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 gut tells me that we might see a real spike the way we did at the beginning of the year we might see another really high january every year since the pandemic uh, started january has been a terrible terrible month uh, the two januaries we've had i guess yeah and we're entering to this cloud of the holidays where updates are not timely and people are gathering but we don't really get a full scope of what the risk is. And I mean, that's been the case for a lot of the last three years. <laughs> Not really having a full or clear sense of what the risk is at any one point. Another part of the story at this time around COVID, I guess, is the super rise in outbreaks in China, who is suffering a lot from rapid infections, mass infections. They're reporting very low death numbers, but there are many people who are speculating that the, the, the death toll may be actually much, much higher than what is being reported. Like the Chinese, much like governments in the West and all around the world, they are looking for ways to fudge the numbers to make it look like it's not that bad, like their change in policy is not as is not creating a as grave a situation as what they're actually experiencing. It's sad because it's the most populous country in the world, and they've staved it off for so long. It is. I feel like there are some things that are really unfortunate about it because they had all this extra time. I've seen some critics say that they never promoted uh, actually good mass and 95 respirators or equivalents, which, yeah, at this juncture, three years in, uh, you hope that they would have. Um, there were always many things about the policies that were not um, that were not great. But it worked for so long. And it's unfortunate that not more of it was revised sooner. And, uh, but, it, you know, and, and hopefully the impact could have been minimized in some capacities. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's really sad and disheartening, too, to see how foolish the reaction is 
from much of the Western media, they are gleeful for this sudden collapse of the COVID zero system that China was running. Uh, China hasn't gone back to like no mitigation whatsoever, but mass infections, yeah, they all over the country. It's creating disruptions to all uh, to all aspects of life, right? What's coming down the line, you know, what, <laughs> there, it seems like there's this moment of like, like Western media is actually enjoying the prospect of mass infections in China, really disturbing way, and not really preparing audiences or anybody really for like what's going to come. Because if factories in China are are not operating even for a short amount of time, I mean, if it's just for a few weeks, it creates it's mass disruptions around the world. So, you know, whatever, it's going to have a global effect. The fact that China's COVID zero strategy is collapsing. <sighs> they're experiencing, it sounds like from the reports that they're experiencing the same things that we saw here. That we saw in Europe, in Europe, uh, in many places around the world, where there is insufficient hospital beds for all these patients rushing in, morgues are overwhelmed, crematoriums are running twenty four seven. It's ugly. It's um, yeah. It's it's a great mis. Fortune and I, what many people are hoping for at this point is that it is quick, but I doubt it will be. Some people are expecting things to return to normal-ish within a couple of weeks, and it's like, nah, this, this is not, this has not been the experience anywhere else in the world. And I know China's running things differently, but uh, it's not going to be a quick recovery. It'll be a few months at best. Probably six months would be a hopeful prognostic. (sighs) It's going to get bad. It's going to get real bad. The other country that I keep looking at all the time is Cuba, and their cases are rising too. But they're still... I think I talked about it once and I got the numbers wrong. The numbers were actually in the single digits for a very long time. And it's only recently that they've started moving into like the upper teens, lower 20s in terms of infections per day. So I really sincerely hope that Cuba, that that's just a bleep in the Cuban system and that they return to their really low numbers. I mean, they're still really low all around, but this thing spreads so quickly that even what seems like a minor uptick can turn into a major catastrophe very, very quickly. The situation here at home, it's much as it has been for the last year. <laughs> Nothing, I mean, like in terms of like what public health officials are saying and doing, not very interesting I just mean this is more of the same. Uh, take whatever precautions you feel you need, but we will give you no information 
to with which to make an informed choice. <sighs> we were supposed to have a big snowstorm today, and I think if you were out for whatever reason at four in the morning, maybe you felt like there was a big snowstorm. But so far, it's been a bit of a dud. It was followed very quickly by rain, so I guess a lot of stuff melted right away. We might get a skating rink city when temperatures drop tonight. What else can I tell you? I ended up watching a lot of the World Cup, but... Well, not... Sorry. I, I lied. I hardly watched any of the World Cup, but I ended up, you know, keeping up with what was happening a lot. It's over now. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> Hooray for Qatar. For hosting. Now, what are you going to do with all those giant stadiums? Tiny country. <laughs> Nobody was asking for it. But I really felt like I... <laughs> like I needed to put out an episode. another Yet another episode. It's been a couple of weeks before Christmas. So here we are. This is, this is what me doing what I feel I should. Uh, for no particular reason. Nobody asked me. <laughs> Uh, I think only on one occasion over the last couple of years has somebody been like, hey, what's the next episode coming out? Uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll leave it there. Kind of a bleak kind of world report. I <laughs> It's been a long time since I did such a newsy podcast, but uh, here we are. And I am... I am glad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't talk about the shit show that Twitter is. Uh, <laughs> again, I was tempted. I think at some point I really had some notes about to talk about that. I, the only like related thing that I can that that I, I want to say about that is that the so-called Twitter files that are coming out recently, revealing like the internal workings uh, of. Twitter and how they manipulate the feed, who can be seen, who can be not seen, who is shadow banned. A lot of the internal workings of Twitter are being exposed. And part of that exposure ties in with what I was saying before about uh, the State Department's interventions around the world. You can see it's come out that many... Um, accounts run by the Department of Homeland Security and the CIA and other triple letter agencies were being whitelisted by Twitter and thus being allowed, even though they were promoting propaganda campaigns and, and running propaganda campaigns and misinformation, they were given the all clear by Twitter at the behest of the security state. So, yeah, maybe I'll post a link to that in the episode notes. That's also... And it just gives you an insight into like how much of what America does is propaganda. Which, you know, there's all this talk about like Russian propaganda. <laughs> and so little about what the largest propaganda machine in the history of the world. <laughs>
doing. And so for that, for that, uh, the Twitter files are interesting. Okay, that's it for today. I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Bye.